And good evening, everyone, or good morning, whatever the case may be, wherever you are. On this rotating globe, welcome to another edition, an action-packed edition tonight of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when just about anything can happen. Okay, I guess by now everyone has heard the news. The Chinese have landed on Mars. Now, we're not quite sure where, because there has literally been no information uh, released, images, data, numbers, uh, not even lat longs of where they landed, other than the time, which was about 24 hours ago, Beijing time. And we know that somewhere, at least according to their pre-planned announcement, in a uh, very broad, ancient ocean basin in the northern hemisphere of Mars called Utopia Planitia. If that name rings a bell with some of you <clears throat> who follow this stuff you know, closely, that happens to be where the Viking II lander in the summer of uh, 1976 landed after the Viking I lander landed uh, many, many thousands of miles away. Well, there is an actual BBC story, which uh, when Kintia can join us, we may actually have put up on the on the site, which has a great um, uh, map showing where all of the um, various landings have taken place. And for those of you who might think, oh, well, maybe the Chinese and their um, god of fire uh, lander, that's what they named their lander, the uh, rover, I'm sorry, not the lander, the rover, god of fire, um, they um, are about a thousand miles away from the Viking II landing site, so um, you do not want to, uh, uh, you know, think of them able to kind of just trundle over and take a look at the Viking II lander, because it ain't going to happen. But the most interesting thing, well, anyway, let's let's save all that until we get John on, because I want to ask him some questions about uh, space policy and China and all that good stuff. If you go to the other side of midnight, for those of you who are new to the show, that's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on that, and that will take you to our homepage. On the homepage at the very top, there's a banner which says for Saturday... Uh, May 15th, um, what the hell really happened on Mars with our guest tonight, John Brandenburg? Click on that. That will take you to John's guest page. Under the banner, you will see fast links to items. That takes you to the section of Radio with Pictures where we have images and links and all that good stuff. Click on my name. That will take you down to my items. Number one, of course, is the... Uh, uh, CBS News report, I figured we'd put up CBS. Given that I'm, you know, an old alum of CBS News, uh, Bill Harwood does a really good job. And the problem is you can't report stuff you can't report if the source doesn't tell you. And the Chinese are being very mysterious. I mean, when they landed in 2013 on the moon, within hours they gave us video, they gave us stills, they gave us within a few hours, a color panorama. It's now been like 24 hours and counting, and there's nothing from the Chinese, not even an image. So anyway, um, item number two, there is an animation. If you go to click on number two, this is one of their new services uh, called Global Link, um, and it shows a really kind of cool landing with some 
you know, jazzy animation showing the radar beams as they uh, lower themselves on retro rockets. No sky cranes for the Chinese. They're using the uh, Viking approach, which was basically parachutes after the heat shield and the entry, and then they go to rockets and they lower themselves, and it all apparently worked. So they're sitting on the surface. What's curious is there's no further information. Okay. Now, at the same time that the Chinese have an orbiter, which, of course, is still in orbit, still taking data from orbit, uh, circling Mars, there is also another country present, in addition to all the previous spacecraft from U.S. missions and the European Space Agency. Um, there is the United Arab Emirates uh, and their unmanned mission called HOPE. Well, if you look at item number three, they released some images a couple of days ago, which are taken in a narrow ultraviolet uh, spectral line of um, hydrogen, the atom, not the molecule. And um, these were taken on the 24th and 25th of April, just a few weeks ago. What they show is the distribution of hydrogen, both around high noon. The first image uh, there at the top is a high noon image with the sun behind the spacecraft. You'll notice that the the right limb is brighter than the left limb. That's because it's been exposed to solar heating longer, which makes the atmosphere warmer, which makes it fluffier, and then it's disassociated by ultraviolet light. So there's a greater concentration of uh, ionized hydrogen on the right limb than on the left. And then if you look at the bottom panel, this is now, uh, as the spacecraft moved over, so the left side of Mars is in night, the right side of Mars is still in daylight, you can see how bright the hydrogen is uh, surrounding Mars on the right side. It's almost missing on the left-hand side, meaning, of course, that the hydrogen is released from water, water vapor in the atmosphere of Mars. There's not a lot, but there's some, and that's a lot of hydrogen. Gosh, I wonder if that feeds directly into our whole questioning as to the density and the composition of the Mars atmosphere. Wouldn't it be interesting if these other missions are telling a different story? Anyway, moving on down, uh, while all this is going on, in the mainstream, there has been a paper published uh, in the last few days. Let me give you the actual title. Um, it is called, if I can pick it up here, um, it's an international team of scientists from countries that include the United States, France, and China, oddly enough, and uh, this particular paper was published in Advances in Microbiology, and the uh, team analyzed images taken by NASA's Opportunity and Curiosity rovers, plus the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter high-rise camera, and they have been looking at details on the surface, particularly from the Curiosity missions, uh, showing little spherical thingies that are on the sands in front of the cameras. And then a few days later, <clears throat> the little spherical thingies get bigger and more of them appear. And anyway, the thrust of the paper is that this is contemporaneous extant life on Mars. Rather complex life, fungi and even mushrooms. And I mean, this would be 
you know, Nobel Prize winning stuff, if, it, of course, it is confirmed. And if, if you read the paper, what you then need to do is to kind of read between the lines because the popular science uh, uh, article on the scientific paper that has been published is somewhat negative and raises the question of, is it just the Martian winds blowing sand away and uncovering other things? And, you know, I'll let you guys be the judge, but it's kind of interesting. We now have uh, several missions at Mars representing a wide variety of international space efforts, including now a newly landed Chinese uh, lander and rover, um, NASA's Perseverance rover mission uh, with a little ingenuity. Uh, we've got the United Arab Emirates upstairs. We've got uh, European spacecraft circling. We've got other NASA spacecraft circling. We have an armada looking at Mars, and in this environment, in this political environment, we have a mainstream group of scientists basically saying, well, if Percy's looking for microfossils of ancient bacteria, uh, they should maybe be looking more carefully, given that we're supposedly on the bottom of an ancient lake. Jezero Crater is an ancient lake. Jezero actually means lake. Um, there might be current life in view of the cameras. All you have to do is kind of compare them. Take a few pictures, wait a few weeks, see if something, as they did in the paper with Curiosity Data and Spirit and Opportunity, see if something appears where there was nothing before. Uh, that would be such a game changer if current life, even microbial life, were discovered by international scientists while these missions are avidly pursuing you know, signs of ancient water, signs of ancient microfossils, etc., etc. Not, of course, even considering the model we have put forward and which we have provided now for several weeks of our coverage of this mission, the Perseverance mission, the obvious evidence of extraordinary, intelligently designed architecture. And toward the end of the program, the third hour, we're going to be joined by some members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team, and we're going to discuss some of the new data on the Jezero Dome. And uh, anyway, I'll, I'll wait till we get into the conversation with John to get into any more detail. Item number six, um, uh, I'm sorry, number five. While the mainstream is thinking about and actually uh, looking at a paper purportedly showing data supporting current life. Uh, mushrooms are not trivial. There is a uh, very interesting story in the BBC. Could humans have contaminated Mars with our life? We've been sending spacecraft there for the last, you know, several decades. There's something like 30 spacecraft and landers to Mars since the space age began. And a number of the landers, of course, um, um, there have been attempts to sterilize. But when you start looking at the biological you know, aspects of clean rooms, it turns out it's really, really, really hard to make spacecraft hardware that's going to function across space and then land on another planet and continue to function there. It's really hard to sterilize it to where there are no microorganisms. So they 
do a kind of a Monte Carlo analysis and they say, well, if we can get the number below X number per square foot or per square meter, the odds of those few remaining surviving and multiplying are such and such. And so tonight we really don't know whether we have, the term is forward contamination, meaning taken viable organisms that somehow remain active and viable in interplanetary space for the many, many months it takes to cruise from Earth to Mars and then go through the entry process and then land and be exposed to the rather hostile environment, as we have been told, uh, of the Martian surface at the moment, to have all that happen and have something survive and then multiply. I mean, we know that life on Earth requires liquid water to really thrive. Um, that and, of course, nutrients. Well, liquid water on Mars right now is very, very, very hard to come by. Uh, first, because of the pressures, again, according to the model, and second, because of the extraordinary range of temperatures. I mean, it can go from a balmy, like 20 below during daytime, where we are now at uh, Sirtis Major, Jezero Crater, down to like 130, 35 below zero at night, um, which, of course, any little organisms, microorganisms with very small mass to very large surface area, they would be frozen, you know, like instantly. And do they thaw out? Have they acclimated to an extraordinarily weird freeze-thaw cycle, uh, lack of liquid water? In other words, the odds are that we really have not seeded Mars with terrestrial life. But how do we really know? And if life on Mars is based, like life on Earth, uh, on DNA, and there are some very interesting uh, circumstantial uh, sets of evidence that indicate that could in fact be the case, how would you distinguish Mars life from Earth life that you brought with you? Unless, of course, you spot a plant. You know, I don't think we've taken spores of mushrooms and things like that. That's why paper and item number four is so interesting. Anyway, be that as it may, um, our guest this morning is going to uh, uh, tell us about some rather intriguing data which completely bypasses all of this because the data John has been carefully amassing ever since um, I asked him to become part of the Independent Mars Investigation Team back in the 1980s, uh, which we managed out of SRI, um, he's kind of been hooked on Mars. In fact, let me give you a little thumbnail sketch of Dr. Brandenburg. Dr. John Brandenburg is a theoretical plasma physicist born in Rochester, Minnesota, grew up in Medford, Oregon, and obtained his B.A. in physics with a mathematics minor from Southern Oregon University in 1975. He obtained his M.S. in 1977 and a Ph.D. in plasma physics, both from the University of California, Davis, in 1981. John presently is working as a consultant to Morningstar Applied Physics, LLC, and is a part-time instructor of astronomy, physics, and mathematics at Madison College and several other learning institutions in Madison, Wisconsin. Before this, John worked at Orbital Technologies in Madison as senior propulsion scientist, working on space plasma technologies, nuclear fusion, and advanced space propulsion. 
He is the principal investigator of the MET, Microelectrothermal Plasma Thruster, using water propellant for space propulsion. He has previously worked on SDI, the Clementine mission to the moon, rocket plume regolith interactions on moon and Mars, the vortex theory of rocket engine design, combined sakharov kaluza klein theory of field unification for purposes with space propulsion and Mars science, and he's also performed an architecture study for a human Mars mission using solar electric propulsion. And the rest of his bio you can read there on the other side of Midnight's uh, guest page. With that, John, come on down and welcome back to the other side of Midnight. Well, Dick, it's it's really a pleasure and honor to be on your show. Let me let me start off by asking you, what do you think of what the Chinese apparently pulled off yesterday? Well, uh, they may have landed, but like at uh, two hundred meters per second. Do you really do you really think that? Well, anyone who's uh, studied the Chinese, uh, you know, the P, I call it the PRC space program. I, you know, because Chinese culture permeates all of Southeast, all of Asia, and uh, many of the people who are in Southeast Asia who have Chinese ancestry have no claim make no bones that uh, they detest the uh, mainland uh, China uh, government and which is a communist government so uh, I will just simply say that the utopia planum turned out to be a very hazardous place to land it was just dumb luck that we didn't uh uh, destroy the land. Well, yeah, we as, the far, as far as I remember, Jim Martin, who was the project manager out of Langley, the Langley um, uh, Center for NASA down there in Virginia, they thought they had, from infrared studies and cooling curves and all that, a nice flat level place to land. And when they got the first pictures yes, back, did. when they got the first pictures back, it's littered with rocks from horizon to horizon. It was it was stunning that they got down safely. So why would the I, Chinese? I, when pick, I heard that, the, why would the Chinese pick that place to land? I don't know. Uh, they got they got Mao Zedong uh, on their on their money. That's all I can say. Uh, let's just say that uh, uh, the fact that they haven't released any pictures or any other data or and are being mysterious. Uh, means that uh, it's it's possible that the uh, the thing crash landed. And uh, well, I don't think that's true because we do have one piece of data which says they got telemetry back that the solar panels opened up, and the ramp extended for the rover, which is going to drive off just like you two drove off the. Yeah. So who reported it, that? The Chinese. So oh, well, if if we hear that from Goldstone uh, tracking, which can also pick up the signals, then then I would be more persuaded. I'm I'll, I'll just say I'm I'm a little skeptical at this point. Generally, the first thing you do when you land, you take a picture of the foot pad of your lander to make sure it's not sinking into the Martian surface or something. Right. So, um, I just. 
Uh, it's unusual that they would not release pictures. And um, well, and not really. Suppose, suppose they landed in the middle of an ancient ruin. I'm <laughs> well, being, that's I'm being, always possible. I'm, I'm being, but I don't think. I, I think that was they're out on the ocean bed, but we don't even know where they landed. You know. Um, but you know they're they're eventually going to land on Mars. It's you know uh, we did it back in 1976. Of course they're going to figure out how to do it eventually. Well, wait, wait, wait. Uh, we did it, John, to... John, John. You have to listen to what I'm asking, okay? Thank you. We did it in 1976 before anybody had ever done any of this, okay? They've now had yes. 50 years to basically steal all our stuff to be crass, to look at all our data, everything we publish is public domain, so they have entry curves, they have atmospheric densities, they have all kinds of technical specs on how you make a spacecraft that survives EDL, so I would be surprised if they didn't succeed. I'm given that they're saying that certain things happened after landing, and if, if, if they were lying, there are other nations, you mentioned the DSN, which is under NASA control, there's also the Europeans, there's the Russians, there's Japan, there's uh, all kinds of independent space programs now, which could basically say the Chinese are lying if they're lying. So I really think that there's a constraint there that would, shall we say, make them more cautious. So if they claim that the lander performs certain functions after landing, and if we get a carrier wave after landing, you may not be able to decode right. it, but if there's a carrier wave coming from the surface, from the lander, which would be separate frequencies from their orbiter, then you would know they're still alive. And since NASA and ESA have not said, nope, it disappeared, like remember Beagle, when the little Beagle disappeared? I know, Beagle became roadkill. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, no, I... I wanted that one to stick. And, and by the way, the same, the British, you know, and the or just the Europeans were in charge of Beagle. They had the benefit of all information from us, probably provided eagerly by Jet Propulsion Lab and NASA. Yep. And they still... Um, landing on Mars is a real trick it's it's harder than the moon it's oh yeah more gravity yes. it's got an atmosphere you have to have a heat shield and um so we'll see we'll see how it all turns out um people uh you know there's a school of thought that the prc is run by a bunch of geniuses and no they're not i'm sorry and um, anyone who studied their history knows this. Uh, so anyway, but I don't want to talk bad about them. I, I just well, the thing we have to the thing we have to keep in mind, I, John, is that the political part is really separate from the technical part because you can't exert too much oh, political. No, no, Dick, you know better than that. The politics is always there. Not in terms of the engineering. The Unless you design it correctly, it will not work. And they've had two very difficult missions to the moon, unmanned landings, robotic landings, uh, that they carried out very successfully. So, uh, and given they have this long database of what we do, I mean, 
the Chinese are not technical slouches. They may not care no, much. They may not care much about their upper stages and lower stages. You know, their debacle <laughs> with with the uh, Long March Five again is kind of inexplicable. I know you actually. And, actually you know why that happened? It was because Elon was going to be on Saturday Night Live. So they had to figure that it was not a coincidence that that booster crashed on the same night he was on Saturday Night Live. It was an attempt to grab a headline. Hmm. That's what I think. Okay. Let me let me ask you a deeper question. I, I, I don't know. Let's, See, uh, eventually this will all yeah. sort itself out. We will find if, in fact, there is data from the Chinese lander, if, in fact, they succeeded. What I'm wanting to get into is, do you want to take any bets on what the first image, not the footbed image, but the image of the surroundings, the horizon is going to show? Because that's going to tell us, to me, an awful lot, <clears throat> whether China is truly independent of this kind of global, mega, secret space program, or well, it it could show it could show show something as provocative as a blue sky. <laughs> exactly. So I'm really looking forward to the first Chinese lander image of the sky. I am too. And the horizon, because if it shows, I am too. If, if if it shows the real environment, then we'll know they're independent. If it shows the same, you know, butterscotch as all the NASA images, then we'll know. I know. Then. But, John, this is very important because it will show us that whatever's going on down here on planet Earth is not the same politics governing what's going on out there. I know. It, it's, uh, it, it's always good to have a second or a third opinion. You know, the, um, the uh, Americans have been orbiting Mars for years. But the first picture of showing a frozen lake in the bottom of a crater um, was released by the Europeans. And so it's always good to have other people reporting things who don't, um, who don't follow the same script. Well, this one is going to be very interesting because... You were, watch, I presume, watching the Perseverance mission when we landed back on February 18th, oh, right? Oh, yes, yes. Remember that the, was just wonderful. Remember the first color image that came down from the hazard cams? Oh, yeah, it showed a blue sky. Yes! Yes, and then, of course, NASA yeah. freaked out and went crazy, and uh, NASA television went all cattywampus, and press conferences got canceled, and it, something... See, my feeling is there's a mutinying group inside JPL that programmed the computer to send us two sets of real data before things got weird. And that's my criteria. Well, I, have actually, I have actually seen pictures of, you know, um, kind of uh, bar-shaped things on some of the... Uh, uh, manipulator arms, mm -hmm. and what? Guess what's on those bars? It's a red, blue, and green uh, LED, right. which means all you have to do is take a picture of that at night, and you know your color balance of your cameras is the same as the human eye. Well, so, you, you, you know, I uh, 
I actually I actually write science fiction under the, the uh, a pen name uh, Victor Norgard, and I have two people crash on Mars. You know, they were an unplanned unplanned landing, but they they are the first human beings basically to land on Mars, and they open the hat they open the cockpit on their craft. And after congratulating themselves on surviving the landing, and the first thing the woman in the back seat says is, "Oh my God, the sky is blue." <laughs> and this, and she says, she says the UFO cover-up has been over for for years, but the Mars cover-up continues forever. <laughs> okay, but hold it there, John. We're uh, at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. John Brandenburg. Members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team will be joining us in the next uh, couple hours or so, maybe a little less. And you know I couldn't get through another Mars show without playing this. One of my favorite songs. So tonight we have the Chinese on Mars. We have Americans on Mars. We have Arabs upstairs taking images in hydrogen alpha light of an awful lot of hydrogen for the very thin atmosphere. When we come back, I'm going to talk to John about the atmosphere of Mars and see if he's going to vote uh, in favor of a different model than NASA has given us for the last 50 years. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And I think it's going to be a long, long time Touchdown brings me round again to find As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities and your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed. 
into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoy my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading toward. I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond, beyond the box. Welcome back, everyone. Saturday night, May 15th, 2021. The Chinese have landed another unmanned spacecraft on the planet Mars. But why haven't we seen any pictures, any data, any horizons? Anyone want to take some bets that the first image that we get will have blue skies? And if they don't, if they're the same weird, murky butterscotch that doesn't agree between all of the 19 or 20 different cameras on even one rover. What kind of inferences can we, you know, draw from that? Our guest this morning is Dr. John Brandenburg. He is a plasma physicist. He has worked in both uh, secure fields and in open civilian space efforts. And uh, he is our guest for the next two and a half hours. So, John, um, let's talk Martian atmosphere. 
Are are you as puzzled right. as, as I am as to why? I mean, have you ever seen the photographs of a guy named Kittinger back in the 1950s who took a stratosphere balloon up uh, up um, to something like 70,000 feet, and then he jumped out. And there are photographs, color photographs, showing that when he jumped out at 70,000 feet, which is way up there, the sky around him was pitch black, and you could see the curvature of the Earth, and you could see this brilliant band of the lower atmosphere, the troposphere. Now, we have been told, yes. we've been told for many, many, many years that the um, uh, atmosphere of Mars is equivalent to the atmosphere of the Earth at about 100,000 feet. And I've got U2 sure. imagery. I've got, um, uh, you know, uh, X-15 imagery. I've got all kinds of images which show what the skies look like when the air density is one one-hundredth of what we're breathing right now. And not one of them looks like all the images we have from the surface of Mars. What the hell is... Well, you sound like you're laughing. I mean, if NASA has been lying to us about the... If NASA has been lying about the atmosphere of Mars for 50 years, what's going to happen when the Chinese land... And remember, totally different communist political system that would love to show up the scrungy capitalists at every opportunity, so we've been told. Are they going to blow the whistle? Are they going to tell us the Martian atmosphere is much denser than we've been told? Or will they go along because space is different than politics on Earth? Um, They will... uh... If if they can take some nice pictures from the surface of Mars showing a blue sky, I think they will show that. That would just be um, that would just be a clever way of poking Uncle Sam in the eye. And um, you know the uh, it, all you got to do is look at pictures of Hubble from Hubble of Mars, and you see a blue sheen around the planet. I mean, it's just. It's it's not a it's not a pink sheen or you know russet. It's, well, for for, blue. for for, for people for earth. people that want to kind of know you why you and I are kind of hipped on the color blue. What does blue indicate about a fundamental planetary atmosphere? It just means it's made of colorless ma- molecules uh, like CO two and nitrogen, and that. Uh, they scatter blue light preferentially to red light, so that the, that's why the Earth's sky is blue, even though all of the gases are actually colorless. So it's, it's called Raleigh scattering, and it's there's very few gases in nature that are actually colored, like chlorine or uh, or fluorine. They're they're kind of greenish. So it, basically. Um, you just see, you should just see blue sky on Mars, uh, except maybe a dust, a band of dust near the near the uh, horizon, like in the Mojave Desert. Right. Imagine you're out in the Mojave, you see kind of a uh, kind of a russet colored dust band near the horizon, but if you look straight up, it's it's a deep dark blue, and uh, on Mars it's probably much darker. It's probably closer to a violet and and um, you probably can spot uh, some, you know, brighter stars even at, at noon 
So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all just kind of, a, I think, I think they originally decided to make Mars sky red because they didn't want to be accused of faking the pictures from Mars and, you know, faking a Mars landing in Mojave. I think that was the reason. But at the same time, they're, they were, you and I both know, Dick, that there's a Mars cover-up, and it's a sideshow of the UFO cover-up. Uh, we're not alone in the universe, and we have a completely line, uh, wait, 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 line let, of independence. Let me, let, yes. me, let me stop you there, okay? Back in the day, Mariner, sure. Mariner 465 flew by, and that's where we get from the calorie experiment, the radio occultation experiment, the current published figure on the density of the Martian atmosphere, right? Uh, yeah, Martian atmosphere is... Okay, but... I got no problem with that. Hang on, hang on. Now we have all different space programs from different nations, some of whom, China for one, have totally opposite political systems than ours. How do you wind up with an international conspiracy to lie for 50 years about an entire planet's atmosphere on a planet that's right next door. I mean, what's in it for everybody to well, go along with the conspiracy when it's just not not real physics? Well, I, you know, I don't have a problem, Dick, with them saying it's six millibars, which is about 1% of the Earth's atmosphere. That's it one one-hundredth, yeah. Triple, that's almost exactly the triple point of water. That's the, you know... So water, large a large water table is probably determining the atmospheric pressure on Mars. And so, um, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Some people do, but I, I just think that Mars has a, a thin atmosphere. It doesn't bother me. It used to be a much thicker atmosphere, obviously. And that's what the, it's Mars past, I guess, Mars past that is controversial to me, not Mars present. Hmm. But wouldn't that just me, Dick, being contrary? Wouldn't it be very significant, for instance, for Musk and his plans for colonization if the atmosphere, instead of being one one one-hundredth, it's one-tenth? I mean, one-tenth surface pressure is the pressure in in uh, several high mountain ranges, the Andes, the Rockies? I know, and and it makes colonization oh, and construction. Be, uh, yes, it would it would be extremely convenient, but there's enough atmosphere to give good atmospheric breaking with a heat shield, and um, and there's enough atmosphere that I believe that there's a small but significant biosphere still existing on Mars from uh, day, its days of past glory. Well, it would be That's my own. It, it would be night and day if it's one-tenth the surface pressure as opposed to one one-hundredth. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess I'm not, uh, um, I'm not pre- prepared to be part of that battle. I've, uh, I, just, I just say, okay, it's 1% of Earth's atmosphere, it turns out the you know the uh, fourth most abundant gas in the Martian atmosphere is molecular oxygen, and I've had Mars scientists tell me that this is completely anomalous, 
they expected it would be carbon monoxide instead carbon you know instead molecular oxygen which is hard to produce by anything but photosynthesis is the, the fourth most abundant uh, gas in the Martian atmosphere, indicating there's a biosphere on Mars now. Well, did you did, did, did you or I? no? Did you follow the announcements from Curiosity about six months to a year ago? I, I can't remember exactly when, but they have an instrument called SAM on Curiosity, which can measure atmospheric composition very accurately. And, oh, oh yes, I followed that very carefully. And the instrument detected methane, which of course is one of those key molecules yes, that's, that's indicative of biology on Earth. Most free, most free methane is produced that. by cows doing you know what and bacteria and all that. Absolutely. So, okay, the it's other the, gas, uh, the other John, we can't both talk at once, okay? The other gas. Fine. The other gas that was rising and falling seasonally, because the really cool thing about the methane is it rose in the spring and summer and then decreased in the fall and winter on Mars. Then next year it rose in the spring and summer and decreased. In other words, a seasonal fluctuation. And what was really weird is that the oxygen that the instrument on Curiosity measured rose and fell in the same cycle with the same Martian seasons. And the yes. the press release that NASA put out said that the principal investigators were so puzzled, they were throwing the question open to the public. Could the public tell them what might be going on? Which I thought was nuts. I know. It's pathetic. What kind of a it's game so are these folks? Are these serious people? Or is it all a three-card Monty on a street corner in, you know, downtown New York? The, the uh, uh, future generations will look on this period as a, a period of, of just collective stupidity and denial. Denial is not just a river in Egypt, Dick. It's, 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 it's when you have stuff that clearly indicates one thing, right in front of you and you refuse to recognize it and the implications of finding life on mars for some reason still freak people out remember when the um the people at houston houston uh manned space flight center found evidence for the uh you know bacterial activity in mars past and the mars meteorites right and they weren't attacked. They weren't attacked by members of the government. They were attacked by academia, who didn't want to be demoted. Apparently. <laughs> well, all they had to do was. Here's to... all these. He's a professor. Know-it-all says, I've struggled for years to be head of my biology department here at this university, and I'll be damned if anybody's going to demote me to being a speck of dust in the universe. What do, you th- what, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think of this new paper, which is claiming, based on NASA's data, and those photographs are very provocative, that there is active, not just microbial life, but fungi and mushrooms growing, within view of the Curiosity well, cameras. It's. I, I'll have to study it more carefully, but 
to me, there's not really very much, you know, even mushrooms grow best in, in the woods where there's a lot of dead and decaying um, uh, organic matter for yeah. them to feed on. Yeah, there's a lot of organic molecules. And on Mars, they're just, it, the soil is pretty poor. But do we know that? So, See, all our data up until the Chinese landed, hang on, hang on, hang on, all our data up until the Chinese landed yesterday has come from one space agency, a single source. Remember NASA's motto, no single point failure? Our entire failure about life on Mars has begun, we've only had information coming through one space program, one source. I think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see where the Chinese politically fall. Are they going to be independent? I mean, everything we think we know, they would love to catch NASA and the U.S. government in a lie. Good God, they would have headlines 40 feet tall if they could. uh, Of course they would. Uh, But I'll also remind you that one of the early Mars, uh, one of the early lunar probes by the uh, PRC showed a picture of a bunch of craters taken from orbit around the moon, and it turned out it, just by coincidence, it was exactly the same landscape with the same lighting as photographed by the Clementine mission. So they <laughs> they basically grabbed a Clementine. Their camera had failed, so they basically just grabbed a Clementine picture and presented it as as a product of their moon probe. Now, they eventually got so they could land stuff on the moon by trying and trying and trying. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Well, um, wait, 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 wait. Their first attempted landing was successful, Chang 3 in Mari Imbrium. Their second landing, Chang um, 4 on the far side, successful. And the oh, images. Yeah, they, early, one of their early probes just orbiting the moon was not successful. It never sent back any pictures, and then it finally sent one. They released one picture. Turns out it was taken by the Clementine. Right, right. So, uh, so uh, you know. They, well, that was they, kind they, of was dumb. A, <laughs> well, it it was, and uh, see, that's, I even that, recognized that, the picture. That seems to me <laughs> to be an example of the political commissars overruling oh, the technical people and being stupid to boot, not yes, realizing they yes. would get caught. Um, they, um, you know, they, this is a country that managed this population control um, uh, program so that it has a surplus of men you know, meaning they aborted all their little girls. And so, so so, anyone who claims the PRC is run by a bunch of geniuses, I'm sorry. I got a bridge to sell you. So, well, but they will eventually, they will eventually land on Mars successfully if they keep trying. Okay, we got about 10 minutes to the top of the hour. Let's get into the area that you were intrigued with in terms of Mars. Um, I remember decades ago I picked up the phone and I called a guy named John Brandenburg and I said, would you like yes, you to did. Would you like to help us do something really bizarre out of SRI? We're looking for evidence of 
ancient intelligent life on the planet Mars. And obviously that spurred you to a a career of not only looking at Mars, but finding some really extraordinary data. Do you remember our first conversation, the reason that I wanted you to be a member of the team? Yes, yes. I remember because uh, I understood directed energy weapons and their effects. And We talked and, about uh, the, craters, looking at the craters. And I asked you, I said, why do some of these craters look like they were, this is a Sidonia, from the orbital Viking yeah. imagery, which is all we had in those days. I said, John, why do these craters look like they weren't like meteor impacts or even nuclear explosions, but they look weird yeah. like they were beam weapon craters? And you said... Sure. I said they, they do look like beam weapon uh, craters. And um, I had... Um, Dick, I'll just give you a little background... I had been at, um, at Sandia Labs for about two years, and it was much different than Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which I had gone to graduate school in, in at Teller Tech, where I worked on nuclear fusion, uh, both the laser fusion and magnetic fusion. And I'd also learned uh, when you, by the way, if you're going to study laser fusion, it's a miniature hydrogen bomb. So you, you have to understand hydrogen bomb physics. Uh, but it was a very hard transition. It was a, the Sandia Labs had a much different culture than uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And here I was uh, trying to make a brighter, warmer future for humanity and solve the energy crisis. Then the funding all dried up, and I ended up working on Death Ray at uh, Lawrence at uh, Sandia Labs. I was working on charged particle beam weapons, and so that was a big. It was a big struggle for me to. Well, this was in the heyday of SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, Ronald Reagan. Actually, yes, yes, it was, and so what happened was I was fighting a little bit of depression when you gave me a call and I, but I had just found out about uh, DePietro and Molinar's work on Mars. And I thought, well, also we had just gone through a nuclear war scare at the lab called Abel Archer. Hmm. And we didn't know how serious it was, but we, it, you can read about Abel Archer on the net. We came as close to a nuclear war as we did during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but nobody knew it at the time. It was secret. Was this a bemused, that, was this a bemused detection of what we thought were missiles coming over the pole? Uh, no, this was the fact that the Russians were very rattled, and uh, we decided to stage a big war exercise. Oh, yes, war, yes, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, I remember, yeah. Yeah, right. so anyway, so you know... So we could see at the lab they were gearing up for um, a nuclear war, and we could feel it. it and the reaction of the uh, staff, it wasn't just me, it was just profound depression. And so when I saw the evidence for a dead civilization, also the Martian winter, the nuclear winter, which was 
you know, caused by a nuclear a dust storm on Mars right. had come out. And this has also contributed to a uh, feeling of deep depression in the staff, the techn- you know, scientists like me. Uh, so then suddenly I see the, um, uh, the pictures uh, from Cydonia Menza of the pyramid and the face and and it suddenly it, it gave me hope that we could get out of this cold war thing and you and i actually discussed that we said you know gee if we discovered a dead civilization on mars that would end the cold war because then we would have to concentrate on on uh well, do you remember? Do you, do you remember the summit that Reagan held with Gorbachev at Reykjavik? Yes. And they actually talked about we would all put our separate ideologies to, to rest in, in 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 face of a common. They phrased it in those days as a threat, but it's really the unknown. Yes. Because if you if yes, you if you encounter was. the remains of an ancient civilization. It tells policy planners two things immediately. One is we're not the only guys in the neighborhood, right? And right. Num- and number two, if you're being cautious, which of course these folks are paid to be, you can't assume they're friendlies. They could be non-friendlies, which means it could be a threat, which means you have to go through that level of analysis. Well, one of, one of the pr- uh, print great principles of SETI is called the principle of mediocrity, which says that the human race and the earth and its biology and everything are not an aberration on the cosmos. We are, we are not exotic. We are mediocre. We are average. And if that's true, then the warlike, highly aggressive character of the human race is to be also found elsewhere in the universe. So, Yes, you have to keep your powder dry, and um, you know the Klingons are out there someplace. <laughs> so um, it, it's just a um, all of this had occurred um, just before you called, and so I leaped at this because it gave me hope that instead of marching lockstep with a whole bunch of other mainstream scientists over a nuclear cliff. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top uh, of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. John Brandenburg, and he, like I, have held for decades now that the one thing that may pull the human race out of this spiral, this death spiral down to as Arthur Clarke once called it, the great primeval sea of extinction in World War III, could be the discovery and verification of the existence of an extraterrestrial civilization. Now, when we were looking at Sidonia, we were thinking in terms of real ETs, real aliens, independent development, evolution, all of that. What happens if you find out in the data that your ET civilization is in fact your own from a long, 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 long time ago? What does that do to international relations? And are we going to see a test 
with the Chinese now independently on Mars, perhaps with separate instruments, separate political philosophies, separate governments, separate engineers, scientists, separate everything, are they going to occupy the same party line? Or are they going to tell us the real Mars, the Mars that we have figured out separately from NASA? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.